Well, good morning out there to everyone. Thanks for tuning in today. Hope it's uh, a good morning for you. This is Mark Dunnigan for The Daily Answer. Let's head back to the Old Testament. Let's take a look at one of the Psalms. Um, I've been trying to kind of finish my verse-by-verse commentaries on various Psalms. Uh, when I was Oregon in Oregon, we would have classes on the Psalms, but there's quite a few Psalms, right? And for a 13-week series, um, you're kind of limited on how many of them you can hit. And so there were some of them that I had not done like uh, a verse-by-verse study on, and I wanted to do that. And today is one of them, Psalm 75, Our God Reigns. A couple things about the Psalm here. You know, in Psalm 73, we have the writer uh, is very perplexed about why the wicked prosper and the righteous don't seem to. And that he saw other people, that they were wicked, and man, nothing ever bad happened to them, apparently. And he just was struggling all the time. And But then he, but then he went and goes into the sanctuary of God, and he perceives their later end. And then he says, man, what a fool I have been. Because when everything's going to go down for them bad, it's going to go down quickly. And they're not going to be able to recover. And that God has put them in slippery places. Psalm 75 is a psalm of faith in God's just rule and judgment. The interesting thing about it is that there's no questioning here. There's no struggle for the writer. There's no envy for the writer. On the contrary, God's way of ruling the universe is, it might be puzzling to us at times, but, and his judgments might seem to be delayed, but he's near and they're timely and the wicked are going to be punished. People that don't repent, it's not going to go well for them. The other thing interesting about the psalm is that uh, some of the very stanzas, you have different speakers, like it looks like the congregation speaks, then God speaks, and then the individual writer will speak. That's kind of cool. So let's get into the text. Psalm 75.1 from the New American Standard. We will give thanks to you, O God. We will give thanks for your name is near. God's name basically stands for who he is. Thus, God is near. Uh, God is never far from his people. He's always at hand. He's omnipresent, able to be in every location at the same time. And, of course, always present to help the righteous. But the wicked need to take this to heart. When they're sinning, no matter how private that might be, God's near as well. God is observing all they do. He's also near in the sense that he's ready to judge, to bring the hammer down. This is God's world. Uh, This is God's universe. He has not simply created the planet and then just let it run by random processes. Neither has he turned the rule of the world over to anybody else. He has not sold the business. He still owns the business. He says, men declare your wondrous works. That is, God's people should be or are constantly talking about the amazing things that he has done in the past and in their lives. The Bible often does this. Very Psalms often do that. They will go through historically and point out, well, at the flood and when he parted the Red Sea and when he parted the Jordan River and he did this and he did that. History is just full of situations where God God intervened. God brought judgment. 
And so if you have God in your life, you are always above the circumstances. You are never under the circumstances. Verse 2. This looks like God is speaking now. Personally speaking. Of course, God is, you know, the writer's inspired. But it looks like God kind of takes the mic here and says, hey, okay, when I select an appointed time, it is I who judge with equity. When the proper time comes, God will give the proper judgment. He will act on his schedule. Man, that's a really important point to remember. From our limited perspective, it might seem that God is delaying, yet he is often patiently waiting for people to repent. And that's either like Romans 2, verse 4 and following, or 2 Peter 3, 9. He will seek to give people the best opportunity to get their life right. He doesn't want to see people lost doesn't want to bring the hammer down, but equally judgment will fall at the best possible moment. And what I mean by that is I think God chooses the best possible moment for the judgment of to get the message across to all onlookers. He exists, all right? And he's in charge. And also as a warning to other people looking on of, I don't think I'm going to take that path. That was severe. God does allow evil at times to work itself out, play itself out, all right, or reach what I would say full bloom. Genesis 15, 16, the cup of their iniquity is not yet full. Yet, here's the thing. There's always good reason for that. If you're looking at something like, boy, it sure looks like God has allowed that evil just to play itself out and spread, okay, And man, it looks like it's reaching full bloom. There's a good reason that God is allowing that to happen. That's not arbitrary. Okay. He says he'll judge with equity. And that means that even when it comes to his most severe judgments, including hell, they're still very fair. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2. Every sin in the Old Testament received a just recompense. Even hell for the unrepentant is just, and it's fair. Even the flood was incredibly just, and there was a tremendous tremendous amount of mercy before the flood happened as well. Keep that in mind, that typically before judgment falls on someone, they have been given many second chances to avoid it. Okay, verse 3, the earth and all who dwell in it melt. And I think the thought is, and at least in the New American Standard, the side reference for the word melter is like totter. And it seems to be in contrast to the word pillars that will come in the next phrase. So only God is truly stable and unmovable. Only God is firm. Everything, everyone else is fragile, temporary, very movable. The Bible often talks about people like grass. And their glory like the flower. That's how that's how temporary they are. Or James says, you're a vapor. Even the most powerful person on the planet is still a vapor that appears for a little while. One generation comes, another goes. God remains in charge. Another idea is that man's rebellion and sin only create a temporary and fragile situation. For eventually the whole lie falls apart. I think that's Proverbs 14.34. Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach. 
Daniel 5 is a good example of that. Here is Babylon behind its very secure walls, but the Persian army comes in under the gates and takes the city without a battle. Verse 3, second part. It is I who have firmly set it on its pillars. Now, man, man will not bring the world to an end. Only God will. 2 Peter 3, 9. Genesis 8, 21 says the same thing. Colossians 1, 16 through 17. Everything was created through Jesus, and through Jesus, everything holds together or consists. He's the glue that keeps the universe together. God controls the destiny of men and nations. He keeps in place the moral and physical order of his creation. All right, that's important. And so it might seem like, oh, boy, everything's out of control. No, it's not. Our, our, our timeline is so small and limited that it might appear like that to us. But in the overall perspective, no. That's why it's important to read history and learn history. Four through five, I said to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with insolent pride. In the Bible, God has warned the arrogant repeatedly. Pride goes before a fall. And such warnings are all over the place. To lift up the horn suggests strength and power. And it's a warning to stop thinking that you can do it all. We're relying upon human resources, power, and wisdom. There are statements in the Bible where like Babylon or an, another empire will say, I'm a queen and I'm not going anywhere and I will always be around and no one will ever take me down. And then they go down. Stop thinking you don't need God, that you can save yourself. Like the Humanist Manifesto arrogantly and foolishly says, you know, no God will save us. We'll save ourselves. Don't think something dumb like some rock star who says, well, I don't need Jesus to die for me. Stop thinking you're all that in the bag of chips, as, once, as someone said. For not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert, what is probably from the south, comes exaltation. Israel's exaltation as a nation, as an, as an individual believers, only comes from God. God is the one who's able to bring low and lift up. You might compare that to what Hannah says, kind of her wonderful speech in 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10. She talks about the same theme, that God exalts the proud and raises the lowly. Mary, the mother of Jesus, has a similar theme in Luke chapter 1, 51 through 53. Uh, God brings low, God exalts. And there's also a warning here to stop looking to the wrong sources for your personal advancement. Stop thinking that you can move up or be exalted without a relationship with God. Well, I've got my connections. I know the people in power, etc. No, that's not where your exaltation comes from. If that's the path that you have taken, beware. You can be brought low. You can be brought down a peg very quickly. History is filled with examples like that. Verse 7. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. And that includes both individuals and empires. Jeremiah 18. Observe, he's the sole judge. James chapter 1, verse 12. No one can override or reverse his verdict. You see, you can't tie God's hands with protest. 
uh, lying down in a freeway doesn't affect God, okay? doesn't change anything. Not only that, but you can't tie up God's hands with a lawsuit or litigation. You can't get him tied up in the courts. When he judges, he will judge. Then it says in verse 8, For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed. He pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. Or there's a warning. You know, you don't have to be wicked. You can repent. You can change. And God is now declaring all men to repent, Acts 17 and verse 30. You know, it's interesting here, the imagery. This is not the only place we have this imagery of God's wrath being viewed as a bowl or cup of well-mixed wine, like wine that's foaming, that's been mixed with a number of very intense spices, very hot spices. And only repentance can avert such. We have images like that in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and also in Revelation 18.6. And I've been thinking about that. I've been thinking about the imagery of God's wrath being viewed as this foaming cup of wine, where you are forced to drink all of it if you're not right with him. And you got to drink it right down to the sentiment, the sediment in the bottom of the glass, the dregs. Some thoughts I have here. When the judgment arrives, you cannot control the consequences. Neither can you opt out of any of them. You cannot say, well, as an individual or a nation, well, we'll accept that one, but we'll pass on those two others. Mm -mm, you got to drink it all. It's as if God's judgment is likened to someone forcing you to drink an entire bottle of whiskey where they're just shoving it down your throat and you just got to drink it in one long gulp, one long chug. The thought is also when the judgment comes, it's too late to think. You're simply forced to drink it. Once it strikes, there is absolute confusion. There are no solutions. You can't fix it or get yourself out. You're simply dumbfounded. You're paralyzed like drunken men. And I think that's true on a national scale. That should be a warning to our country and others. When God's judgment shows up, all your diplomacy, all your think tanks are gonna be completely confused and dumbfounded. All your smart and wise men are going to be paralyzed. Okay, I think that's one of the warnings there. Thus, one writer says this, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, Pharaoh's army drowns. Nebuchadnezzar is humbled to the point that he's on all fours and eating grass like an ox. Herod is dying in agony in his death. Well, the other Herod, what is eaten by worms in Acts chapter 12, I believe it is. And Hitler kills himself in his bunker. They're all forced to drink the dregs. Now, in verse 9, it looks like the psalmist is now speaking once again. He says, but as for me, that's a Joshua type of statement, as for me and my house. And so it looks like the psalmist is saying, and I agree with everything that's been said. Yeah, the it, I will declare it forever, are the thoughts of the psalm. There is a God, he's in charge, he will judge the wicked. There is a heaven and there is a hell. And for Christians, Jesus, you know, you might say in the New Testament that we would add here, uh, Jesus is coming back. Are we still declaring that? Is that what we declare? 
forever. Then he says, I will sing the praises of the God of Jacob. Observe that the things that he is declaring are not positive or encouraging to many people. To the wicked, to our culture, they're not very positive. Like, we don't want to hear about hell and God's judgment and sin and things like that. And yet, to the godly person, they're songs. To the godly person, they're an incredibly positive message. This is a refreshing message to godly people who are so concerned and vexed by wicked people who are doing so much damage around them. You see, the righteous are trying to keep things together. They're trying to help people. And they pick up the pieces of people that are destroyed. The godly person rejoices when God judges and the fact that he will. There's tremendous comfort in that. Then it says the final line of the psalm, verse 10, and all the horns of the wicked he will cut off. You know, the wicked in this life often seem so powerful, uh, so untouchable, but they're going to be stripped of all their power. In fact, their power is very temporary and even illusionary. And observe that the judgment's certain. It's a done deal. The power of the wicked is a lot like uh, the dependable level of electricity in a third world country. Come and go at any moment. You know, you got it. You got 15 minutes of it today and then it's gone. It's been diverted. Yeah, the power of the wicked is like that. But the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. Consider for a moment that the righteous are said to have horns or power as well. But it's not simply within them. We have more influence and power with God than we realize. Consider Ephesians 3.21. For we have tapped into true power and not the temporary kind. Mark Dunnigan for The Daily Answer. Until next time, I'll see you in the funny papers.